You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host, and I am here for a Q&A with Scott Drockletown. It's me. <laughs> We're, We're having a moment. It's We're a moment. having a moment. A moment. We're losing our minds. I'm losing my hair, too. No, it doesn't look yeah. Doesn't look it's, like it. It's okay from the front. The the snow's falling off the mountaintop. Oh, you know okay. what I mean? Okay, yeah. Hair club for men? I guess. My hair is thinning, which is bullshit because I've had really, really thick hair my whole life. Do you just weep over little piles of it in the shower drain? I just look at it and I'm like, wait. Is this all or like what? What's weird? <laughs> like the ponytail I have now is really enjoy it while you're young. I locked somebody in. They yeah. signed a contract Same. lifetime. Whoo! <laughs> Close call. That's so topical for our Q and A today. <laughs> it can't, which yeah. is which is about family. Which or is about being or fed lovers. up. Lovers, all of those. And the Q and A for today is I'm so burnt out. With my addicted loved one, I don't know how to be supportive anymore. We're at the end of a long road. It's been really hard. It's been up and down so many times where my hope is dwindling. Like, what am I? How do I still show support? Oh, it's so hard. It's really important. I know that if you have been on this journey, you've heard this a thousand times and you're like, thanks, Ashley. Yeah, I know. But it is really important to do self-care and support yourself. And there are ways to do that. I want to say the reason that that's so important is that in a relationship with someone who is struggling with addiction, you will never come first. Your needs will never come first. They will never care. Like eventually, right? Like, of course, this isn't always the case in the beginning, but eventually as as you start to circle the drain and, and come to a place where things really need to change, your interests, care, concerns, feelings just come last. Whether that's true or that's what it feels like, that's the experience of the family and the loved ones. It's really important that you're putting those things first because you can't rely on the other person in that relationship to do it, which is abnormal in most give and take relationships, there's some amount of assumption that that other person will consider your feelings, your needs, etc. That won't happen in, in a relationship with someone who's in active addiction, even someone who's newly sober. The other piece is expectations. So they say expectations our future resentments. My experience is that this is very true. We have expectations around this should be bad enough for you to get sober. This should be a big enough consequence. You should care enough. I should be important enough. They should be important enough. You told me that you were ready to get sober and then you changed your mind. All these things, all of our ex. And so as the, as the person not struggling with substances, you're going, okay, you told me that you wanted to get help. So I assumed, I expected you meant what you said or that that meant something. And it's not that it doesn't mean something. It's that addiction 
the way that it works in the brain is that people get what we call moments of clarity. And moments of clarity are moments. They're not hours, they're not weeks, and they're not clarity. They're moments of clarity. And the thing about a moment of clarity is that it passes pretty quickly. And if you aren't capturing and making a change in that moment of clarity, leveraging that moment of clarity, then the likelihood is that you're going to be waiting for the next one because they're going to go back into that old thinking where the brain is taking over. It's really, really important that you are putting yourself first in some way, shape, or form that's possible and that you are managing your expectations, whether or not they're in treatment, whether or not they are doing what they say they're going to do. There is a difference between being hopeful and expecting it to be something. And when we have expectations, that is when we are stringing ourselves along to be more and more disappointed and more burnt. And when we are hopeful, but allow the situation to play out as it's going to by taking care of ourselves in the meantime and managing our expectations, we tend to fare better. What about, I could see anyone who's been given this information and the idea that it's these moments of clarity. How do you keep yourself from being like watching the boiling pot kind of thing, right? Where you're (sighs) like, Yeah, You know, that you can actually feel like you can live your life as opposed to just like waiting tensely for whatever this little moment might be. So I'll give you a a little vignette. I have a friend who is married and her spouse is in active addiction, has been in active addiction. And she has been waiting for her spouse to come to the very obvious conclusion that she needs help with her drinking. She's drinking quite heavily. They are separated. They have young children together. The spouse has moments where they are, where they reveal that they think they may have a problem or something, you know, alluding to wanting something different. They have been in treatment before, but for the most part, they're pretty disconnected from this idea that help is something that they need. My friend the wife, she got a call recently and the spouse was saying that they were ready to get help. And she rushed over to the spouse and comforted them and tried to come up with a plan and listen to them for hours, talk about yes. And her goal is to help her spouse get help regardless of whether or not the marriage is going to continue because they have young children together. And it's really important that they have two functioning, not inebriated adults in their lives. So my friend rushes over there and, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, here we go. This is it. They're going to ask for help, et cetera. And And the next day, the spouse was back to, I don't need help. I don't, you know, like literally that moment had passed. And my friend was totally rocked by this. Understandably, she had rushed over to talk to them and had hoped that there was going to be some sort of change. And my experience watching it as a professional, as someone who's, I've had a lot of different roles in these types of scenarios, is that the prudent way, if possible, okay, it's easy for me to say not being, you know, emotionally tied to the situation, but the prudent way when someone that you love is talking is, you know, suddenly talking about something or something happens, you're like, okay, this is going to be it. This is bad enough. This has got to be bad enough. This is just, this would be bad enough for anyone is coming from a place of, I really hope this is bad enough. I really, I'm really hoping, you know, I, I, my fingers are crossed. I'm really hoping and leaving space instead of I, this must be bad enough. It's, I hope this is bad enough. There's a difference between 
a friend of mine, we were talking about uh, someone else we know who is circling the drain, so to speak. And she was saying, oh, it's absolutely going to be, it's, you know, a disaster. It's, it's already almost, it's going to be a disaster. It's a hundred percent a disaster, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I was like, yeah, I hope it's not. And so, well, but it's going to be. And I said, but I'm still going to hope it's not. I still, like, I still am going to, you know, it doesn't matter if you know that it's going to be something I'm hoping I, I, I'm allowed to hope. And I think that's a really important piece to employ. I hope everyone comes out of this. I hope we get to recovery sooner than later. I hope this is the last house on the block. I hope. And creating this space between I expect, or I need this to be, or this has to be bad enough. This has to be bad enough. That is the difference between disappointment and anger. The disappointment is totally reasonable and rational. The anger, that only poisons the person who's angry. That's part of what burns you out. This this journey, this roller coaster that you're on with this person that is just up and down, up and down. Get off the roller coaster. You can still stand in line next to them. You can be and at the fair. Just get off the roller coaster. You don't have to ride it with them. And when they actually get off, you'll know because they've exited the roller coaster, not saying, I want to get off. I want to get off every time they come rushing by you. And you're like, oh my God, oh my God. And that adrenaline dump and the hope and then the disappointment and all that. And again, it doesn't mean you don't love them. It just means that, you know, there's that saying, actions speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. That's a very, very, very important thing for anyone struggling with addiction in, in dealing with them. Their actions speak so loudly that you can't hear what they're saying because addicts, people who struggle with substance use who are in active addiction, real good talkers. They talk you into a whole, they talk you into it because they are talking themselves into it. So they're going to take you on that roller coaster with them. Get off the roller coaster and and create just this, this internal distance between them and you. And, and I always say, Picture this person as a toddler. If you've had kids, picture this person as either a toddler or a teenager. And they're telling you, I've been the best boy in the whole world and I should get all the candy and I'm going to, I'm going to be good forever. And you're like, okay, great. You know, you're hopeful that, that, that they're going to be great all year. You, you, you don't expect it though, right? You're, you're like, uh-huh. Or they're like, you're the worst person I've ever met. You've ruined everything. You're the worst, meanest mommy. And you know, whatever, whatever. I'm never talking to you again. And you're like, okay, I'm really sorry you feel that way. There's this distance that we're able to have, particularly with toddlers, a little bit more difficult with teenagers. They're going to throw barbs at you. They're going to make promises. It's all over the place. You have to stay in your inner adult and you have to create this space. And it's the space you can create with a toddler, which is, I love you. I see that you're throwing a temper tantrum because I'm the meanest mommy in the whole world. And I'm just going to stand here and wait. And it doesn't mean that I can control it. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's my fault. It doesn't, any of those things. And you can be mad at me. But we have this ability in our brains to create distance from the deep feeling of you're the meanest mommy. If you can superimpose that onto your addicted loved one, it's a really great tool. Just look at them like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum and say, I love you. I hear you. You're angry. The whole world's against you. I got it. I love you. I hope I hope that tomorrow we have a different, you know, I hate to say it's detaching with love. I feel like the hardest one for me or anyone who has identified themselves as the loved one of this person is the one where they're like, if we're continuing the analogy that it's like, you got off the roller coaster because you don't care about me anymore. If you did love me, you would be in this with me. Like some For version sure. of like that would strike deepest 
to me as as protected as insulated as I felt like I had made myself there would be a moment where I'd go I don't know mate am I I right ugh. so there's a couple of like analogies I'll use to to work with that which is like you'd be in this ride with me you'd be on the roller coaster I can love you and stand right next to the roller coaster and be there for when you're ready to get off I can't stop a roller coaster while I'm on it I am not in control of the mechanism if I'm sitting in the ride with you going up and down and up and down I, 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 I have no control all I'm doing is making myself as sick as you are so if I get off the ride and I stand next to it and I say I'm here for you when you want to get off because you're the only one that can pull that lever. And as soon as you say, like, pull the lever, as soon as you say, I'm getting off or I want to get off, I'll be there. Maybe they choose to get back on the ride. Maybe they say, I want to get off, they get off. And then you help them and they choose to get back on. But your love for them is not predicated on you being in the ride with them. It's It might be predicated on you being on the fairgrounds or in the amusement park. But if I have to destroy myself actively to love you, that isn't that's not love. That may be a lot of other things, but it isn't love. If you love someone, you're you're on the ride with them, whether you want to be or not, because you love them. And if they're going up and down because you love them, there's a part of you that will always be going up and down. The part of you that you have control over is the choices, the daily choices you make of not engaging. And that engagement is where we get on the roller coaster, right? So engaging is having an argument with them about their behavior, having an argument about what's real and what's not when they're telling you, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. You always think I'm doing naughty things. You always blah, 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 like whatever it is. And you're like, that's not true. Blah, 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 blah. And you're, you're, you're going and you're getting on, that's getting on the ride with them. Each time you try to get in the ring with this person and talk sense into them about things or argue with someone who isn't on the same wavelength you are, you're opening yourself up to this chaos. And, and it's really difficult to simultaneously have inner peace while being thrown into this chaos. And so what I see a lot of people do is take too many phone calls. There isn't conversation to be had at a certain point. The conversation can be, I am here for you if you want to get help. If you want to get help, I will bend over backwards. I'll drive you to treatment. I will, you know, whatever it is, whatever that version looks like for you. I will pay for it. I will call insurance. I will, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't really have anything to say if, if you're killing yourself. So I'm here for you. If you are participating in bettering your life, I will sh I'm, I'm here and I'm a phone call away. But I can't support you if you're not doing that because I love you. And then you have to expect to not be understood. And that is the hardest part. And that's where the work on self is so important when you're a family member is you have to believe what you're saying because they're never going to go along with it. It doesn't it, it doesn't support what they're doing. Addiction is the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease. It's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, the definition of insanity. How can you how how can you get a sane response when someone's doing those things? If you need support, where where do you go first? There are a lot of people on social media, on YouTube, talking about how to deal with someone who is struggling with addiction and to talk about all the different things. A couple of people that I have heard are great 
a woman named Amber Hollingsworth with uh, Hope for Families. You can look her up. Al-Anon is amazing. Also, Line Rock Recovery has a family program that anybody can do. It's six weeks, once a week. They meet and talk about how to handle specific situations with the family member, which is pretty cool. So you can bring the situation and get feedback from therapist on how do I handle this? Not just kind of generic answers, which can be harder to apply to your life. You can check out Addiction Education Society. They have 10 survival tips for loving an addict. And I highly recommend getting some books. Gabor Mate has a great book um, in the realm of hungry ghosts, and he came out with one recently on trauma. There are a bunch of other books, which I will do a post on that really explain what your loved one is going through and can explain some of the intricacies and neuroscience regarding why people do some of the really weird stuff they do and how to handle that. It's different if you're a spouse versus a sibling versus it's a parent or a child. There there are different dynamics and different responsibilities that people have. And I think that they are hard to answer to in a general context. But I do think that the really it's really important to remember part of how you get on the ride with your addict is through conversation with them. That is getting on the ride with them because they're going to spend their time talking, trying to convince you and themselves of the thing they want to be true. I think it's really important that if you control the conversations that you're having with this person, how often, how much, how long, what you're willing to talk about, what you're not, that is a really big piece of deciding to be off the ride with them. Be really intentional about what needs to be discussed and what doesn't. They know you want them to get help. That doesn't need to be discussed. They know that. They may not know that you love them. That might be helpful, telling them that you love them. That's important information to remind them of that, that they're lovable and you love them. But they know you want them to get help. They know they have a you know the all these things. Like You're not going to change their mind if you've had that conversation a million times. Bringing it up is only opening up conversation that's putting you on the roller coaster. We get off the roller coaster by controlling the conversation and the contact. I hope that's helpful. Please feel free to write to me, podcast at lionrock.life, and I will happily answer any questions I can about specifics. I always respond to people and check out some of those resources. Read up on what is happening in the addict's brain. I promise that will help a lot with understanding why this person that you love so much who used to be normal is no longer. Thanks for listening. Share this with anyone who you think would benefit, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.